You can go to Luke chapter 1. You can put a little marker here because we'll be here pretty much the end of the year, until the end of the year. Luke chapter 1. We stand to honor God's word. I'm going to start with verse 5. I'll read all the way until verse 25 here. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commands and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he, Zechariah, was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord to burn incense. Verse 10, And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and will go before, and he will go before him, speaking of the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Verse 19, Zechariah Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak with you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and not able to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated as we pray. Lord, please add a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word that's that's beyond my understanding, uh, our thoughts, beyond my words or thoughts. Lord, tune our hearts and our minds to understand and 
and revere you, to desire you, to believe upon you, tune our wills to obey you. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome to the Springs. Uh, If you're visiting, my name is Peter. I serve as the lead pastor. Uh, Today, I have the pleasure of introducing a new series uh, called Hark. Hark. It'll take us all the way up to Christmas. Hark, how the bells, sweet silver bells. Hark, the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Glory to the newborn king. Hark is probably not a word that you use in everyday conversation, right? Uh, No, okay, none of us, right? Just double checking. If you do, then uh, I want to roll with you. But it's, a, it's an older word that some of these Christmas songs were, were, uh, were, were, was given to, written with. And hark simply means to, to listen, uh, to hear, or to catch. Okay? So now you'll never forget that. Hark. You want to try again? All right. To catch. If he drops it, then we all would have dropped it, all right? So now none of us will forget. That's a new neuropathway. Hark means catch. So here's the thing. We're going to go through John chapter 1 and a little bit of John chapter 2 for the next several weeks. We're going to see people who hearkened the word of God and the promise of the coming of the Savior of the universe and see the events that led up to and surrounding the very first Christmas. We're going to see people who had their own weaknesses when it, when it came to hearkening unto the word of God. And mostly we're going to see God's glorious will being done despite our weaknesses. So I think since the series title is a one-syllable imperative, which is a command, I figured I'd stick with this theme. And as I unpack our passage today, our 20 verses that we read uh, in, the, in chapter 1 of Luke, I have three one-syllable imperatives. So three things that Zechariah's encounter with the angel of the Lord Gabriel Three things that his encounter compels us to do rightly. Fear, trust, and hear. First of all, fear. Luke is the only gospel that that tells of the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of John the Baptist. And here we have right away... In this passage, Zechariah is showing a really unfortunate propensity to fear in all of the wrong ways and the lack of not fearing in the right ways. Uh, It starts here, verse 11, the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw this, and fear fell upon him. Some of us don't understand what angels look like. Um, We read from the Bible, there were 
angels that would take out whole armies of God's enemies. Uh, I heard one of my pastors uh, from back in the day said that if, if, if we think that angels are little babies with diapers on, we're sorely mistaken. Because if you saw an angel, you would need a diaper. <laughs> angels are fearsome beings. And yet, what Zechariah didn't understand is that this fearsome being was there in his favor. And he couldn't recognize that. He didn't have the right kind of fear. He had the wrong kind of dread, as if God was opposed to him in his fearsomeness. Fear fell upon him. That's what the angel says to him in verse 13. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. I love he continues to pray, even in impossible circumstances, And God comes to dramatically show him an answer to his prayer. He was overtaken with fear in such an important moment in his life. And the weird thing, though, is is that just a few verses later, he goes from having the being full of the wrong kind of fear to all of a sudden that wanes, and all of a sudden he's now not full of the right kind of fear. The reverence that's required to respond rightly to God. Verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel after this amazing promise is given to an undeserving man, right? And he says to the angel, how should this be? For I'm an old man. My wife is super old too, or advanced in years. And the angel answers him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you this good news. Basically, like, do you know who you're questioning right now? Chill out with this. Somehow his initial fright had quickly subsided, and all of a sudden he's making demands with God. How can this be? Describe it more specifically. He lacks the right kind of fear, which is a reverence and an awe for God because he's so full of the wrong kind of fear. This all too often is you and me. We approach God and in our souls is all sorts of dread and kind of malevolent feelings about God's feelings towards us. He's against us. He's ashamed of us. Uh, And we have a type of dread that's not godly. We're full of the wrong kinds of fears and we approach God not with the right kind of fear, the right kind of reverence and awe of God that's meant to override the wrong kinds of fears. Zechariah in this moment was much like you and I often are, just upside down. We approach God in a real similar way. Either we, we, we have the wrong kind of fear and we think he's like some sort of monster that's against us, or we... We don't have the right kind of fear. Like, Jesus is just, you know, like my buddy. Uh, When I was even younger than I am now, there was these shirts that said, Jesus is my homeboy. And I had like a picture of like the Euro Jesus doing one of these things. Um, I think that was probably well-meeting. But let me just clarify that Jesus is not just your homeboy. We need to be full of the right kind of reverence and not the wrong kind of fear. I love the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, these movies, and uh, the books. 
There were books first. Uh, and in the book part of it, the beaver is describing to Susan about the king, and she's getting in her mind this picture of what the king's like. And the beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. And Susan said, oh, I'd thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You see, there's something about the Chronicles of Narnia that helps us to understand that we can be full of the right kind of reverence and fear of God without losing that God is good. He's fearsome and he's good. Now, I want you to check your heart for a minute. As you approach God, what error in respect to how you perceive God when it comes to fear, what error are you more likely to approach God with? Of these two, is it more like seeing God as distant and dreadful and in opposition to you instead of being for you even when he's correcting you and disciplining you like he's against you? Or do you err in seeing God as good and close and chill and not possessing any sort of... uh, uh, infinite holiness that you are meant to, to, to fear and revere. Which error do you more commonly make? See, I think, I think that God put holidays especially in the world calendar several hundred years ago so that we could have a rhythm every year to rightly revere God and to kind of check our state of awe and fear, and not get used to, and accustomed to, to empty traditions, but to slow down, and to stop, and to remember, and to revere, and to reboot the right kind of fear, and to reject the wrong kind of fear. That's why I think God instituted this rhythm to our seasons. If only we would slow down so that we could speed up in the right sort of ways. But unfortunately, all too often with the holidays, it's the opposite, right? We, we speed up with the wrong kinds of fears and we spin in the wrong kinds of circles. And Christmas, especially in our culture, is full of all sorts of things that are less than reverent. I mean, even the outside fears of our lives, the, the traffic and the inconveniences and the overspending and the hassles, all that stuff really just expose exposes the the inner, deeper fears that often the holidays brings up in us, the the heartaches. We're afraid that God won't provide. These are the wrong kinds of fears that are often exposed in the holiday seasons. We're afraid that God won't provide. We're afraid uh, to believe that God can restore our families and our broken relationships with other friends. We're afraid to share the good news of Jesus 
with our friends and loved ones during the holiday season. The wrong kinds of fears are exposed in us. And when these fears invade our lives, they, they really function as preventative measures against God moving in and through us. We have plans with how things are supposed to go. And we're afraid that they'll change. Well, what if that's the most redemptive thing that can happen? Zechariah and Mary and some of the other characters, the shepherds that we're going to read about in the next several weeks, they had plans too. All of those plans, you know what they are? Neither do I. Because those aren't the things that are written about. The things that are written about are God's plans that overrode their plans. What if God wants to reject your plans because he loves you so much? And he has something way better for you. And the best thing that you can do right now is slow down and revere him. Reject the wrong kinds of fear and fear him in awe and reverence. Fear. And next we see trust. Trust. Zechariah was a good and honorable man, and yet he really struggled to trust God. He stared down a holy angel of God, and he starts making demands for additional evidence to this promise he was giving when given when he shouldn't have been given this promise in the first place. This was already an overwhelming gift that he was given. And he starts demanding more at this point. He says in verse uh, 18, How shall I know this? I'm an old man. My wife is old too. As if the burden was on God to give him more evidence. Church, I don't think there's anything wrong with seeking more understanding of God. God, why this? God, why does this happen in my family? God, why do I have this thing in me that just keeps being on repeat? God, why does this happen there? I don't think there's anything wrong with seeking understanding of God, but there is a bold line between seeking understanding and demanding exhaustive evidence. God gives us sufficient reasons to trust him. It's not blind faith. He gives us reasons to trust him, but still it's our decision whether or not we're going to trust or distrust. It's a decision every day. It's a decision that costs us. There's economy for this decision that goes through our, our lives and our schedules and our budgets. It's our decision to trust him. I believe God gives us evidence and reasons to trust him. I really do. In fact, this whole book of Luke, the very verses that we, we, we started almost at the start of Luke, right? Verse 5. Well, check out verses 1 through 4. Here's how the book starts. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers, see the evidence language? Ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, says Luke, the, the doctor, the physician, to take a break from his career and to do what? It seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account 
for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. This man, Theophilus, was most likely a a Roman nobleman. And for him to really take the, the plunge of faith and trust in God, that God, strangely enough, would fulfill his plan to save the universe by coming in the form of a man to redeem sinful men and women. Coming in the form of a poor Jewish teacher that died through Roman execution as atonement for sin and then rose again from the dead, walked around for 40 days with 500 eyewitnesses and ascended into heaven. This claim that this same God is still alive, seated at the right hand of God, and that he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will have no end. Theophilus had a decision. Would he trust in this and risk throwing away his whole life? Maybe his, his, his family would disown him and reject him. He wanted some evidence. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with examining a little bit of evidence. And evidence was given. The whole book is, is written for evidence. It's, God, is, God is on team data. He's all about giving you reasons and giving you evidence. There's nothing wrong with seeking evidence. The gospel account of Luke, he's a, he was a physician. This book was regarded by, and still regarded by a lot of secular, uh, even skeptics. As they look through some of the accounts of the ailments and illnesses that Luke describes, the way he describes them, even modern skeptics say that it's really incomparable with other works of antiquities, old works, with how Luke described these illnesses and things that were of, of evidential uh, details. He gives good evidence. Luke, the book, the account for who Jesus is, the life that he lived. There's reasons to trust. This whole account is either verifiable or falsifiable. There's too many very specific details to just be ambiguous. It's verifiable or it's falsifiable. And it turns out it was verifiable because the eyewitnesses that he describes in verses three, verse 2 or 3 were willing to die for the things they said they saw. So when Luke tells this story, he is not against having evidence. It's that when when Zechariah is presented with the promise of God, the question is, what's he going to do with it? Is he going to trust God? Or is he just going to exhaustively demand more? We have reasons to trust God. We have evidence to trust God. What do we do with that evidence? You can believe that George Washington never existed. There's evidence for the fact that he did exist, but you can choose to believe that he never existed. And I can't technically prove to you that George Washington did exist. He was our first president. He was a military general in the revolution. I can't necessarily prove that to you beyond the burden of trust. 
You have the evidence, and it's your choice to trust. I can't necessarily exhaustively prove God's existence and what he says and his trustworthiness beyond the burden of trust. But the burden of proof is not on God. I believe it's squarely on us to look at who God is and what he says, the word he preserved for us, the, the, the person he is that lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died and rose again from the dead and preserved the story miraculously for us. He did a lot. And I believe the burden is on us to trust him. Zechariah had sufficient reason to trust. He had no good reason to demand more and more evidence that came out of his insecurity, his inability to trust God. God gives good reason to trust him. I'll give you a contrast for a second. Contrast between how I trust my wife. I don't, get to, I don't monitor everything she does. I trust my wife. I do not trust my two-year-old daughter, Bethlehem. She's given me reasons to not trust her. There's a reason why we have a video monitor in her room. If you put her in front of things that are fragile, she will destroy them. I don't trust her. I don't need a video monitor on my wife. Well, could she break my trust technically? Well, yeah, but I trust her as a person. I have the evidence. I have enough. The burden of trust is on me. Zechariah had good reasons to trust the word of God. And in this moment, he demands more evidence. And instead, he was, he was given a consequence. He said, you'll be mute until these things come to pass. What's great about this, it says, they will come to pass in their time, the angel says, but for now, you're mute. You can't even talk. He failed to trust God. He struggled with rightly fearing God and trusting him. Fear, trust, and finally, hear. Hear. What I find most amazing about this story is that it has very little to do with Zechariah. I mean, I had to dig there and sit on it for a second to realize, man, this guy had some struggles here because the story is not about his struggles, right? The story is about God's good plan to redeem his people and send a forerunner. That's what the story is about. The story is not about his inability to Zechariah's inability to trust and to fear God. The story is about God's goodness to do his will anyway. And is that not the story in our lives? My story about how I follow God has very little to do with how I've done good things and I've, I've trusted him rightly and I've feared him rightly and I prepared myself to walk justly with God. My story is about how I'm a religious hypocrite. I grew up trying to do the right thing, but lying, failing, could not get to God, could not make myself right with God. And yet God came and redeemed me and took me back 
and sent people into my life to totally destroy my disobedience and destroy the fronts that I put on and destroy the the things that I held against God to keep myself far from Him. And He came through and spoke. And His still, small voice spoke and He gave me the ability to hear. As human beings, as Christians, the paramount things that we can do aren't things that we perform for God. You know, this Christmas, I need to do this. Or worse yet, this New Year's, I commit to doing this. Let me just help you. When you fail those things, remember that the paramount things that we can do, the greatest things that we can do, have everything to do with what we can rest in, in God. Not that what we can perform for Him. It's not about performing for God. It's about slowing down and hearing the voice of the Lord that restores us, that affirms us, that defines us, that speaks to us, that cuts through our excuses and our lies and the enemy's attacks on us and says, this is who you really are. This is how I really love you. I know this is hard. I know this is ugly. But what have I done for you? Our ability to hear God is the greatest task before us and it's the greatest gift that God offers. It says that, I want to address this blameless word real quick. It says that that uh, Zechariah was a blameless and righteous man. Does that mean that he was without sin? Like the very first time this man ever sinned, was he was an old man and, and, and the angel appears to him and his first sin was mistrusting God? No, I don't think so. When it says that he was a righteous man, it means that he, he sought God. He was an honorable man. He, he adhered to the law the best he could. He had an earnest desire to please God. It was, so, it was a man who had weaknesses, but a man who was willing to have God work with his weaknesses and his sin. Here is a man that stood in the, to seek the presence of God. And you need to know that at the point at which he was going into this temple to seek God and to hear from God, not a single Israelite had heard from God for 400 years. It's called by some the, the period of silence. 400 years silence that there had not been a prophet that had spoken to the people of Israel, to the Jews, for four centuries. The last prophet, if you go to the the, the very last words of the Old Testament. In fact, if you have your Bible, turn there. It's Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4. That's one more page here. The very last verses, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of destruction. And then it's just a bunch of blankness. Very last words of the Old Testament. This amazing promise about Elijah coming back. When, when Malachi spoke these words about Elijah, Elijah the prophet had been dead for 300 years already. 
So it was a strange, miraculous thing that for 400 years after that, the people of Israel were waiting on. And, and I, I tend to think that as they were waiting, they thought they could kind of hasten the fulfillment of God's word, right? Like, man, if I just do this, this is going to happen. You know, the Messiah is coming. Elijah's coming back. In many, many efforts of the Jewish people in this period of silence, the Maccabean revolt, there's, there's things that happen where they tried to hasten the coming of the fulfillment of these promises. And the, all those efforts were squashed. Have you ever tried to, to hasten the coming of God's promise in your life? Uh, have you ever tried to help God out a little bit? Every time I try to help God out a little bit, and to perform for him instead of resting in him and hearing him. Every time I try to do that, it seems to me like I'm slowing things down in my efforts to speed things up. God doesn't need my help. He wants my ears. So here's this, this word, this promise and Zechariah goes to the temple. I wonder if he was thinking, man, this is my, maybe my last chance. And if I'm chosen by lot to enter into the temple, what if this is my last chance? And he gets chosen by lot. He goes into the temple. And I wonder if he's thinking, man, if I just light the incense just right, maybe I'll see something happen. If I just do this, if I just do that, maybe I'll see something happen. The whole time, I, he's probably thinking, God doing what he needs to do is dependent on me, right? You ever think like that? Wrongly? Like me? Like, like God needs you to just get things, just get the mood set just right. You didn't need that from Zechariah. And Zechariah sees God appear before him. Still in his performance, I think when he demanded in verse 18, how will these things be? I think it was partly a demand for evidence, but he also probably thought like this promise is like, like also like an assignment. Like I'm supposed to father the forerunner of the Messiah, so, so give me more of the details so I can get it just right. But it wasn't an assignment. It was a promise. God didn't need Zechariah's help with fulfilling it. It wasn't an assignment. It wasn't a task to be performed. It was a gift to be received. It wasn't a plan to be created. It was a plan to be caught. It wasn't a message that he needed to distribute among the people. It was a message that he needed to hear. Fear. Trust. And here, I think to make it crystal clear, God caused him to not be able to speak. So all he could do was just watch and listen as God did what he promised to do. How often is that what we need? I'd wager to say that that's exactly what you need this holiday season. Today, what you need more than anything is to stop, to hark, to hear, to rest in God, to watch Him move, but to know that He doesn't need you. 
to move. He's not waiting on you. He's going to do what he wills anyway. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice. God's promise is fulfilled in John about the promise in Malachi that will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. And he'll prepare a people. This very fulfillment happened in a guy that it was just absolutely impossible for God to fulfill the promise through an old couple. And I think God today wants you to know that when it seems most impossible for God to fulfill his plans in your life, when you've messed everything up, when they messed everything up, that's precisely when no one else but God can get the credit for the fulfillment of his promise. Would you just stop and hear and watch what God does? When it says a people prepared, what does that mean? I believe it has everything to do with a people who's, who are witnessing the hearts of fathers return to their children. I think it's a people prepared to hear the voice of the Father as he powerfully affirms the Son of God who would come into the world. Before this, people, no one had talked about God, the everlasting God, as a father. But I believe through the ministry of John the Baptist and through the fulfillment of what God did in his promise through him, that there were people prepared to have a paradigm for Jesus to come and talk about God the Father as if he was really his father and making a real familial, intimate connection with us. There was people prepared to hear messages like this. Like John chapter 3, verse 16 For God the Father so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Would you pray with me, Lord?